Effective Living with Reverend Henry Hubert. May you be blessed as you listen. Now, the message. Lord, you I want to bring to a close today. Um, that is the first part. I hope to come back to it um, in the course of the year. But we've been studying on principles of Bible interpretation. I believe that it is important for every matured Christian to know how to interpret the scriptures, how to read the Bible and understand it very well. It is important for every matured believer to master this and only book which constitutes our manual for life that guides us continually. Hallelujah. And um, we've looked at inspiration. The Bible says in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 17 says that, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the purpose of scripture um, is to provide us four important things. Doctrine. The second one is reproof. The third one, according to verse 16, to give us doctrine, reproof, um, correction, and instruction. The Bible said these four things are important, according to verse 17, to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So by and large, you will come across men of God who are preaching the Bible, but they are not complete. Hallelujah. They are not thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so they preach the word to people and preach to them messages that does not build people up, but messes them up. Hallelujah. And eventually we are all growing and coming to the place where one day we will need to sit with somebody and share the scriptures with them. Whether you are a pastor or you are a leader, once you are a Christian, even as parents, you will need to sit with your children and share the scriptures with them. So it's necessary for you to know how to interpret the word of God. Otherwise, you will be found wanting regarding this scripture. It says that you have to be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. For every good work, for everything you do in life, the scripture is very necessary to give you doctrine, to give you reproof, to give you correction, to give you instruction. Uh, we also look at reasons why the Bible is the word of God. What proofs do we have that the Bible that we read as compared to other scriptures? Because when you study, you realize that the Bible is not the only scripture. There are many, 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 many religious books how can we tell that the Bible is different from other books, from many of these so-called scriptures that we have? And how can you prove it? You need to know how to convince somebody to believe that this is God's word. You need to even know how to convince yourself that this is the word of God so that you can build your life on it, you can stake your life on it, you can, you can bet your life on it that if I take the words of this book and I apply it to my life, I will be successful and I will do well. Amen. Because one day, you may have to prove to somebody that this book is the word of God. Amen. Right. Now, there are three important principles that guide us to interpret scriptures. We started looking at it last Sunday. The first one is the principle of simplicity. The second one is the principle of harmony. And the third one is the principle of history. I want to take you quickly through the first two, and then finish up with the third one and show you a few examples. Amen. Now, when we talk about the principle of simplicity, we are trying to say that God spoke in plain words to his children. God did not speak in coded messages. God spoke his word in plain words to our understanding so that anyone who takes the scripture will be able to read it and understand as much as possible. The Bible is not a mystical book. You don't need to join a special society to have some special initiations and then you be taught some special codes before you can interpret the scriptures. No, everybody. Because God spoke through his word to his children and everyone who who has given his life to Jesus, is a child of God. God wants everyone to take his Bible on daily basis, 
read it and understand as much as possible. Now, the issue about the principle of simplicity is that you will need to have command over the language in which you are reading the scripture in order to understand it very well. For instance, if you are reading the English Bible, you will have problems interpreting simple statements because you don't understand the English word. So it requires that whatever language in which you are reading the scripture, you need to have command over that language. For instance, if you are not very good in Gan language, it's not good to go and take a Gan Bible and say you want to study God's word from that. That is what has misled many people. You have to take very important notice of simple English vocabulary. Words, as stated in the scripture, sometimes you will need to take your dictionary to say, what is the meaning of this particular word? Instead of just giving it some mystified spiritual reason. You know, sometimes we see a very big vocabulary in the Bible and we just give it some mysterious meaning. And the moment you do that, you spoil the whole interpretation. Important things like semantics, syntax, these are not, it's just talking about the English language. How words are structured. Amen? Syntax means how words are structured to form a statement to give a specific meaning. Amen? For example, I saw on a signboard the name of a church is Glory House. Now, if you write down Glory House, you write under it House of Glory. The two don't mean the same thing. An English scholar will tell you the two mean different things. Ordinarily, we will give you the same meaning. Yeah, I will leave that as an assignment for you. Go and find out the difference. Because house of glory means that a house that has glory in it. But when you say glory house, it means a house which itself is glory. All right? So the name of another church is Eagle House. It means there is a house and the house is what? An eagle. But probably they wanted to say house of eagles, all right? So you can read simple statements in the Bible and your lack of command over the language will dribble you and you will misinterpret the scripture and you will teach people wrong things. But we also said that at the same time, you have to consider the form of literature. You know, the Bible is written in different ways. For example, when you read a newspaper, you will come across different um, writings. You will see an editorial. You will see front page adverts in the newspaper. Sometimes even a joke, a cartoon. You will see many different writings. So when you are reading a newspaper, you need to know what are you reading. Are you reading an editorial or you are reading an advert or announcement or what are you reading? So when you're reading the Bible, the Bible is written in different forms of literature. We have a part of the scripture that is historical. Part of it is narrative. Part of it is prophetic. The prophetic books, you understand? Part of it is poetic. Then we have the gospels. Then we have the epistles. So when you are reading the Bible, you need to know where am I? If you are reading a poetic book, you will come across some statements that are figurative. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. It's a figure of speech. Amen. It doesn't mean you want to do some special, mysterious prayers with a palm tree in your hands. God said to Israel, I'm taking you to a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. What did God really mean by that? You know, that's the churches you go, they say, bring honey, bring milk to church. And then they will give you, it's in the Bible. Read your Bible. It's there. God said, I'm taking you to a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. So they said, bring the honey. We're going to pray. You pray. And I said, drink it. And you drink. You know, honey is very sweet. So if you give it to me in church, I'll drink. But I want you to know, it has no spiritual significance. Especially when you relate it to this scripture I just quoted. Amen. Because the people God told that I'm taking you to the land flow and make an honey. God didn't tell them, in order to reach there, go and drink honey. The people, the Israelites, God never told them, in order to reach the promised land, drink milk and honey. They, God never told them that. But that has become a ritual in a church. It's important for you to know, what am I reading? Am, am I reading a prophetic book? Am I re reading a narrative account or a historical account? You know, for example, everything in the history books is the same as it is. And it's accurate. 
Every historical account of the Bible has been verified by archaeologists and historians who are, who are not Christians. You know, when I went to Israel, I came across the writings of one historian called Josephus. Josephus was not a Christian. He was a historian who lived around the time Jesus died. And in his books, most of the things that Jesus did, he wrote it in his book. It's even in his book that there was a revolutionary called Jesus who was killed. So the word revolutionary tell you he was not a Christian. He never believed in Christ. But the historical records prove that everything that the Bible said happened, happened. That it didn't happen in space. It happened in a place that is still there and evident. Yeah, most of the things we see in the Bible, they are there. River Jordan is there. I saw it. I walked in it. The Sea of Galilee is there. Nazareth is there. Everything you read about, you will see it. Amen. So you need to know, what am I reading? Then, another. I'm going to show you examples with this. So that is a principle of simplicity. Everybody say the principle of simplicity. So when you read the Bible, you need to take your time and try to understand it. Now, we also talked about the principle of harmony, which means, which says that the Bible is one complete book. The Bible was written by 40 different authors within a space of 1,600 years, but there is one person who inspired all of them, and that one person is the Holy Spirit. So the whole Bible says one thing. The Bible does not contradict itself. It means that whatever meaning you give to one text of Scripture must agree with every other part of the Bible. That is the principle of harmony. So if you take a text and you tell me this is the meaning, and yet I can find another scripture that says that what you are saying it does not agree with what is in the Bible, it means that the meaning you are giving to the scripture is wrong. So the principle of harmony says that the meaning of every text is in the same Bible. You cannot find the meaning of a scripture outside the Bible. You find it in the Bible. Scripture must interpret scripture. Amen? Yeah, that, that brings us one important word. Every Bible interpreter must know. That word is context. Everybody say context. Context means that how does the text you are dealing with, how does it relate to the whole Bible? How does it relate with other scriptures? Amen. So if you are studying on prayer, there are many scriptures in the Bible, in different parts of the Bible that talk about prayer. You need to make sure that whatever meaning you are giving to your studies on prayer agrees with every other scripture that talk about prayer anywhere in the Bible. Alright, so today we want to look at the third principle. Principle of history. This principle says that scripture was written at a particular point time under certain circumstances which must sometimes be considered in order to get the accurate interpretation. Amen. So when we talk about the principle of history, we are trying to say that the Bible was not written in our time it, and it was not written in Ghana. The Bible was not written in Ghana. It was written at a specific geographical location. So for us who are in Ghana reading the Bible, there is a geographical gap that we have to consider. Amen? Then there is a cultural gap. The culture of Palestine is different from the culture of Ghana. Amen? So, for you to understand some parts of the Bible, you need to know a little bit about the culture of the people at the time the Bible was being written. It will help you. And there is also a language gap. Language gap because the Bible was not written in English. It was translated into English in the year 1611. The Bible was written in Hebrew language. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Part of the New Testament was written in Greek. And the rest part was written in a language called the Aramaic language. Aramaic language is the language of the Babylonians. When Israel was captured by Babylon under the rule of Emperor Nebuchadnezzar, they transported all Israel to Babylon as captives. And they stayed there for 70 years according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. So they learned the language of, of Babylon. When they returned to, to their land after 70 years of freedom, they still spoke the language, while at the same time still speaking the Hebrew. So around that time, from the Babylonian captivity up to Jesus' day, 
All Jews spoke two different languages. Hebrew language and the Aramaic language. So it is believed that even Jesus, most of his preaching, he did it in Aramaic language. By the way, let me bring something to your notice. Today, if you go to Israel, they speak Hebrew. They write Hebrew. But the Hebrew that the Jews speak today is not exactly what was spoken in Bible days. There has been a lot of um, adaptation, a lot of changes have taken place. So, the original Hebrew language as spoken in Bible days is not there right now. Because language is dynamic. How many of you know that? Yeah, language is dynamic. So, another principle of history. Can, I, can you give me the next slide? Another principle of history, I want to show you three important things. The first one is the author. Everybody say the author. The person who wrote the Bible. Who wrote the Bible? Is it Apostle Paul? Was it Moses? Was it David? Was it Samuel? Was it Peter? Was it uh, Matthew? Who wrote the book? In what condition was he in? Was he sick before he wrote? Was he excited? Was he in prison? Was he in captivity? Hallelujah. Very important. What condition did the right author write is very important. What is the purpose of writing? Where was he when he wrote? And what time did he write? Very important. He helps. After the author, we look at the, the people that were written to the audience. Who was the scripture first written to? What situation were they in? The book of Jeremiah was written to the Israelites when they were in Babylon, captivity. Same with the book of Ezekiel. It's very important for you to know what situation were the people in before the book was written? The book of Psalms was written at a time when Israel had rest, run about, because David had beaten down every enemy and Israel was enjoying peace and comfort. It's very important to know in what condition was the person that was being spoken to or being written to. Yeah, if you read the book of Proverbs, you realize that an elderly experienced man was advising a young son whom he was mentoring to become the next king. So the book of Proverbs is the notes that Solomon wrote when David was teaching him. In other words, the book of Proverbs is more of David's thoughts than Solomon's own. Very important. When you understand that, you see, when Bible read the book of Proverbs, said, my son, this and this and that. That was David talking to Solomon. The social life of the people, the geographical location, the economic and the political condition. Israel lived under different political settings. There was a time they did not have a king at all. Then there was a time they had a king of their own. There was a time they were in captivity. There was a time they were not in captivity, but they were colonized. So there were different political dispensations that you need to know in which time the Bible was written. Amen. The third one is the language. All right. So what is interpretation? Let's get back to interpretation and see how we can apply these three principles properly in few Practical examples. I define interpretation or interpretation of scripture is defined as determining the actual meaning of any text of scripture as intended by the original writer. So interpretation is not giving your own meaning to scripture. Interpretation is not making the Bible say something you want. Interpretation is this book was written by David. Who did he write it to? Why did he write it? What does he mean by the statements he wrote? For example, if you read the book of Psalm 3, which most of you like because it speaks to you. Hallelujah. And when you have very good um, study Bibles, a study Bible will tell you, it will tell you the purpose of writing. Each chapter, and that is why it's good to have a study Bible. And I encourage everyone here this year, buy a study Bible, at least one. Because a study Bible tells you that Psalm 3 was written by David when he was running away from the palace during the coup d'etat from Absalom. So you see, when you have this at the back of your mind, you read this scripture, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. You just know that his own son launched a coup against him to overthrow him, kill him, and ascend the throne. So as he was running away, you read the scripture in 1 Samuel, the Bible said that David removed his shoes and put it over his head and was walking. 
with his generals and his army going to the bush because the battle was very strong. So while he was going, he wrote these psalms. And it was a prayer he was praying. He said, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Because the number of people who supported Absalom were more than the people on David's side. Everybody had predicted that David was finished. Amen. So you meet somebody who thinks life is over for him. You know, you can take this scripture and exhort the person and preach good to the person. But you cannot take this scripture and preach to everybody. The context has to be situated properly. He said, how have they increased who trouble me? Many are they who rise up against me. Verse 2. Many are those who say of me, there is no help for him in God. The word seller means, can you imagine? Ponder over this. Think about it. A whole me, a whole David, a whole king. They said, I'm finished. There's no help for me again. That is life. Amen. That is life. Hallelujah. But verse 3, he said, He said, By you, O Lord, I shield for me my glory and the one who lifts up my head. In other words, people think it's over with me, but me, I believe that I'm going to bounce back. And I'm going to come back. In other words, when David was going to the bush, he was not planning to retire. As he was going to the bush, they were strategizing how to take back Jerusalem and take back the throne. He said, you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Verse 4, he said, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Verse 5, I laid down and slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. You know what he's saying is that there, were, there was a time, even to, to survive one day, it's a miracle. Each day was a miracle because his life was under threat. And the person that has put his life in this situation was his own son. Verse 6 says, I will not be afraid of 10,000 of people who have set themselves against me all around. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. You know, David was a dangerous man. There are people who don't fight. Do you know that before the battle that killed Absalom happened, before the loyal soldiers of David went back to fight Absalom, David had finished the guy in prayer. Amen. So when they were going, David told them, bring Absalom alive to me. He knew Absalom would lose the battle. He knew his people would win. But he said, don't kill him. Bring him back to me. You know why? Because he prayed so much. He prayed so much. He knew the outcome of the battle long before he started. That's what you learn from this scripture. But if you didn't know why this psalm was written, you just read and read, and the meaning you will get is not as powerful as I am explaining it to you now. Now, I want to give you just a few examples how you can interpret scriptures properly. Let's have Isaiah chapter 6, popular one. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Many prayerful people love this scripture. What does he say? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, what does this scripture mean? The scripture says that there was a particular time something happened in my life. What happened? I saw the Lord, amen, sitting on a throne. I had a vision. I had a revelation of God sitting on the throne, and his robe or his glory filled the whole temple. But this vision I had, it happened at a particular time. And the time it happened was the exact year Uzziah died. So what was Isaiah really trying to do? Isaiah was trying to give a historical account of an event that took place in his life relative to a specific date. Specific date. And what was the date? The year King Uzziah died. Amen. It's like saying that somebody was born in the year Atamels died. Or somebody had an accident in the year Nelson Mandela died. You're making reference to uh, dates. Because, you know, in those times, we didn't have these calendars yet. We didn't have calendars. Let me give you another example. I, Isaiah 20. Now look at this. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. So what was Isaiah saying? In a particular year, certain things happened. But in, for you to know when it happened, it happened at a time when Tartan came to Ashdod. Amen. You know, but I've heard many men of God interpret Isaiah chapter 6 in a very, very interesting way. They say that if King Uzziah had not died, Isaiah will never have seen the Lord. 
It means that you have to fish out all the Uziahs in your life and pray that they must die before you can see. Have you heard that before? That is violation of scripture. That is misinterpretation of scripture. Yeah. Anybody here say that has messed the Bible up. It is nowhere that somebody must die before you prosper. Because you cannot build a theological position with this scripture by saying that somebody must die. Show me other scriptures that say that people must die before you prosper. Let's put it in proper context. It doesn't mean that sometimes God himself cannot decide to take the life of people because they are fighting you. It doesn't mean God cannot do that. God can do that. And we can see that in the life of Moses. When Pharaoh pursued him, God told Moses, Pharaoh is going to pursue you, but I'm going to drown him in the Red Sea. But it was God's prerogative, God's decision. Moses didn't have to pray, God, kill Pharaoh. If Pharaoh doesn't die, we will never be free. No. Matter of factly, Pharaoh was alive before they were free. I'm not trying to raise questions over any man of God as ignorant. I'm just trying to teach you that you can hear a lot from the Bible. The way people interpret scripture, they interpret it wrongly. And so your application, you see, before you get up and say, you want to pray that somebody should die, you must have a Bible for it. And this is the Bible they give you. And I'm saying that it's wrong. The interpretation is wrong. So the application definitely will be wrong. Have you learned something right now? All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. Hallelujah. What does he say? He says, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. Now, when you read this, what does it tell you? Women should do what? At where? Church. So, this is a good place to say women don't qualify to preach, isn't it? Wow. Wow. Now, to give this scripture proper interpretation, you have to look at the context in which it was written. Amen? And I thought that when you are looking at context, certain important things must come. One, the first one is what? Pretext first. Amen. Pretext means the text that comes before. The pretext is what? After. Text itself, the wider context, and all that, and all that. Okay, so let's start with the pretext. Let's see what it says. So it means that pretext should be verse what? 33. All right? Let's see verse 33. For God, let me read, ready, go. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, this scripture already suggests to us that Paul was dealing with an issue of chaos in the church. There is chaos in the church. There's a chaotic situation that Paul is trying to bring what? Order. Then, let's look at the protest. Let's look at the next verse. 35. Can you read that also for me? Ready, go. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. Okay, so which women was Paul really talking to? Look at verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. Verse 35. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husband. So, which women? Every woman? He was talking to a specific woman. Which woman? Married women. All right? So now the question that comes is, were married women talking too much in the church? Why did this happen? Now, I said that context is in two dimensions. There is the scriptural context, then there is the historical context. Do you remember? Now, if you study the historical situation in this church, in Jewish tradition, only the male go to the temple. The women go, but they have, there's a place they stay. So now we're bringing in history to clarify that there was a tradition in Israel, which is not with us in church now. But in Jewish times, under the law, when the men go to the temple, the women stay at a secluded place. So if you come with your wife, you get to the gate, the wife goes to a place. They don't participate in, in everything. Amen. Then Jesus came. And everybody is born again. And now all the Jews who are born again, now they can go to church with their wives and sit like these people are sitting here. Is it not nice? Yeah. It's good to sit with your spouse when you are in church. Amen. That's just by the way. It's good to sit with your spouse. Why should you come to church? Throw your wife to the, to the west and you go to the east. Sit with your wife. Amen. But there was a problem. Now, suddenly, the women who have been marginalized, who never had the access to the temple, now they are in church. And anytime the scripture is being read, they ask their husbands a lot of questions. So Paul said, let them ask their own husbands at home. If you come to church and you have a lot of questions, write them down. At home, talk to your husband. Because in those days, the, because the men were always in the temple, they knew the law more than the women. Amen. 
Now, if you don't know this, you would take this one, add it to the one we read last Sunday, and he said, you're a woman, you want to be a pastor? Never. And listen, it has taken over whole denominations because of this, but it was not talking about preaching. Amen. Because a woman standing here to preach will not create confusion in the church, will it? But Paul is trying to deal with confusion. Look at verse 33. The pretext says that God is not the author of confusion. How will a woman standing here to preach bring confusion? So there must be something else that was happening other than a woman preaching. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, a popular one. 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 1. It says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the tradition just as I delivered them to you. So there is an important word that just popped up there. The word is tradition. Everybody say tradition. So I'll come back to that word. Very important. All right. That's how you study the Bible. Now, but I want you to know that the head of every man is what? The head of every man is? The head of every man is what? The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Wait a minute. When he came to man, he said every man. Have you seen it there? The head of every man is Christ. When it came to woman, he didn't say every woman. In the first place, principle of simplicity, simple English already tell you that not all women are being addressed here. Hallelujah. Let that one sink in. Is it okay? The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. Singular to singular. He didn't even say the head of woman is man. Woman's head is man. Now, I see one word very common there with the three people. Whether it's women, whether it's men, whether it's Christ. What is that word? Head. What does it head means? Authority. So, this scripture actually is talking about what? Authority. Amen? That's why we have head of departments. We have head teacher, headmaster. He's talking about what? Authority. So, before we read further, we can tell that this scripture seeks to address a problem of what? Authority. Amen. And Paul said, even Christ is submitted to an authority, which is God. Man, every man has a superior authority, which is Christ. Woman has an authority, which is man. Amen. So, any verses that we see further that talk about the word head must be dealing with what? Our human head or authority? It will be dealing with what? Authority, amen? Is that difficult to understand? All right, but see how it has made churches make serious decisions. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. What does it mean? When men pray, they must honor Christ in their prayer. Because Christ is the head of the man. So when I stand here as I'm behaving like I am a superman, I am all in all, I am a self-made man, I made myself what I am, I don't ascribe glory to Christ for what he has made me. Bible said, I am dishonoring my head. And he's not talking about this one that I took to the barber to do like this. Amen. My head is who? Christ. My head is who? Christ. Amen. Verse 5, the more serious one. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now, every woman doing what? Praying or? That means that if at a particular time you are a woman and you are not praying and you are not prophesying, this scripture does not even apply to you. Like you are sitting now. You are not praying. You are listening to me. So this scripture does not even deal with you. But in case you want to pray, the Bible said there is a posture you must take. And that posture is that you must cover your head. Now, we have to look seriously at another case of history here. In Palestinian culture, in Jewish culture, when a woman is married, is married, or let's say a woman is wedded by a man, she uses a veil. You will not see a ring. Now, some of them are becoming contemporary. But in Bible days, if you see a woman who is married, you will not see a ring on the finger. You will see a veil. They cover themselves. Only little part of the face will show. 
before they go out to avoid temptations. So if you are a man, you see that veil means don't go near. Hallelujah. That was under the law. Now, when grace came and people gave their life to Christ and go to church, they want to undo that tradition. So even the married women, they say, ah, now we are not under the law. So this tradition of veil, veil thing, let's take it away. Hallelujah. And that brings us to the verse 2, when the Paul was talking about a tradition. Amen. Let me give you an example. Some traditions are part of our culture and our social life, but it is necessary for godliness. Amen. So I will not be happy to see a woman who is married, you know, shall I come, who, when is going out, you know, this ring is very nice, but she will not put it on. See, you raise questions in all of us, our mind. Especially the husband. Isn't it? Yeah. So even though it is not a commandment in the Bible, thou shalt wear a ring when you marry, it is a good tradition to keep. Amen? So Paul is saying that a man must not, must not cover the head when praying and prophesying, but for the woman who is married, don't stop using the veil because it communicates an identity that you have. And that identity is that you are a married woman. Amen. Now, I'll, I'll give you more for this in verse 10. What does he say? Say, for this reason, the woman. Now, he's beginning to address a specific woman. Hello? He said, for this reason, the woman ought to have what? A symbol of what? On what does it mean? The veil tells you that you are married and that you are submitted to your head. Who is the, woman, the married woman's head? The husband. So the veil is a sign of submission. Submission to authority. And Paul said, because of angels. Why? You cannot be a woman who rebel against your husband and come and stand praying or prophesying, expecting the angels to minister to you. Because angels operate on the principle of order. Order means that authority must be in place. So when I rebel against Christ, I cannot receive and enjoy the ministry of angels in my life. Amen. If any member rebel against me in this church because I am the head of this church, you rebel against, you cannot enjoy angelic covering and ministry and blessing. The same way, you, the married woman, your husband is your head. You rebel against him, you will not enjoy the ministry of angels. That's what it says. Hallelujah. But the important meaning of this scripture is that if you are a woman and you are married, cover your head with a veil because it shows that you are submissive to your husband. Amen. How do we apply this in our lives today? Does it mean every married woman to go and cover her head with a veil? Are you following me? Does it mean every married woman to cover the head with a veil? No, because that is not our tradition now. Our tradition is that when you are a married woman, you wear the ring. Unless the man didn't give you any, then you are free. If a man marries you, didn't give you any freedom. But if the man married and gave you a ring, even if it's nasty, horrible, cheap, inexpensive, inexpensive, wear it. Because it shows that you acknowledge that you belong to somebody. And that you are submissive to that person's authority. You recognize that person publicly. And that you are not ashamed to be called... His wife. This scripture has nothing to do with scarf. Amen. However, when you are come to church and you feel like using a scarf is not a sin. It's not wrong. But while you enjoy using it, don't force everybody to use it. Oh, yeah. But the wrong interpretation of this scripture has caused, I mean, a whole denomination to go the wrong way. That is why his interpretation is a very crucial thing, dangerous thing, serious issue. Yeah, at the end of the day, I want you to be able to explain this thing simply. Don't go and quote me something I didn't say. All right? All right? There are many, many, many examples I'm trying to look for. Let me give, show you one more and then Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Wow. This one is powerful. Can we all read it? Ready? Ready? Go. Amen. What does this scripture mean? <laughs> what do you understand by this? <laughs> huh? No, I'm not saying what do people say it means. I'm asking what do you understand by this? Hallelujah. A woman shall not wear what? 
No, did it say trousers? Where is the trouser there? I've been looking for it. I can't find any trouser there. Amen. Amen. Did the Bible say women shall not wear trousers? But I heard some people saying trousers. Did this scripture actually say women should not wear trousers? But I know some churches, if you wear trousers, they tell you you go to hell. You go straight to hell. But, okay, if it doesn't say trousers, what does it really mean? <laughs> it says a woman should not wear anything that belongs to a man. All right, so I want a lady who is wearing trousers to come. Pastor Nina, come. The dress you are wearing, is it yours? Is it yours? Is it yours? You bought it yourself? Now, when you went to the shop to, to buy, they told you it's for women. The top is for women. The down is for women. They didn't tell you it's for men. All right. Now, my question is, is Pastor Nina wearing men's dress? You go to the shop. I want to buy ladies. Okay, let's say, Brother Daniel, you're going to shopping. For your wife. They said this session is for ladies. You go there. There are trousers. There are shirts. There are blouses. There are jackets. There are coats. Everything. The person who was sewing this dress had a lady in mind when she sewed it. Do you know? So let's say, Pastor Nina, I'm just doing an illustration. Amen. Illustration, oh, please. Don't take it beyond that. Stand here. Let's say, Pastor Nina's husband, let's say so, is Francis, all right? This scripture says that this woman should not go and take any of this man's dress and wear. And this man too should not go and take any dress that belongs to this woman and wear. That's the simple meaning of this scripture. Amen. By the way, the time this scripture was being written, there was not even anything like trousers. There was nothing like trousers. Trousers was uh, a later development of fashion. And please, how many of you know that fashion is dynamic? Hello? Yeah. 50 years from now, 100 years from now, I don't even know what our children will be wearing. Maybe men will start wearing skirts. It's, it's possible. It could happen. Because in some parts of our world, like I think Scotland, men wear skirts. So fashion is dynamic. So here we are. Thank you very much. God bless you. God bless you. Here we are. Somebody took this scripture and decided that the only dress that this scripture address is trousers. So, even ladies who don't wear trousers, but they wear shirts. Now, the word, this question is shirt. Is it a male dress or women's dress? The only problem they have is the trousers. And the question is, this scripture was not addressing the trousers. If you want to take it further, this scripture was part of the law. It was under the law. It doesn't apply even to the dispensation of grace. You say, I'm lying. Let me show you verse 1. So, we contextualize this. You shall not see your brother's ox or sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. Verse 2. If any brother is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house. And it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. How many of you know you cannot do that now? The laws of the land, Becky. The laws will charge you for keeping with you a stolen good, isn't it? Now, our laws in Ghana says if you found something either stolen or lost, report it, isn't it? So you cannot do this now. But under the law in Israel, you have to do it. Verse 3, you shall do the same with a donkey and all that. Verse 4, you shall not see your brother's donkey or, or, or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. Verse 5, then we come to the woman, all right? So it was given a series of laws. Verse 6, the more interested ones. If a bear's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. Verse 7, you love this one. Verse 7. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Verse 8. When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. So even, even in Israel, there were laws governing how they designed their buildings. All this I'm reading to you is under the law that God gave Moses to bring to Israel. Look at verse 9. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kind of seed. 
That means that in Israel, it's a law that if you are doing maize, it's maize. You can't say, I mean, I want to do maize and beans and granites. It's, a, it's against the law. You know, sometimes you need to take your time and read the law. You see, you, then, you, then you understand grace and, and, and what it means to be under grace. I mean, it says, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. That means that if somebody goes to a farm where there is cassava and corn on the same field, both is defiled. You, you, you are not supposed to eat it. Now, it is in this context of the law that they put that scripture. A woman should not wear the garments of a man, and a man should not wear the garments of a woman. It is in this context. So if these scriptures do not apply to us now, how come you want to just worry women in the church? All right? So if a woman joins the army, what will she do? She'll tell them that, you know, I'm a born-again Christian, spirit-filled, and I love the Lord so much. I don't want to wear trousers. It means that all ladies, all ladies that are in the army or in the police, they're all going to hell. Because they tell you that if a woman wears trousers, it's going to hell. I mean, like, seriously, it doesn't make sense, does it? Oh, it doesn't make sense. Amen. Let's, let's do the last one and close. Let's do the last one. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I'll leave you to go and do your own study. Go and take the Bible and read properly. Read the Bible properly. Amen. Amen. Let's read from verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Amen. What, what was Jesus trying to say to this man? Unless someone is born, what? What does he mean again? Again means what? A second time, isn't it? Uh-huh. So, literally, this scripture is saying, everyone who wants to see the kingdom of God must be born a second time. The first one is when you were born by your parents. Anybody who was not born, all of us were born by our parents. But there is a second birth. Jesus said, you need a second birth in order to see the kingdom of God. Amen. Very important. If you don't understand the word again, if you don't get the true meaning of the word again, you can easily be using this word born again, born again, born again, but you don't even understand it. Some people think born again means go to church. Some people think born again means stop drinking. So there are people say, you know, I don't drink. I don't chase women. I don't smoke. I don't steal. I don't do anything bad. I'm born again. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, except someone is born again, which means and said someone is born the second time. There is a second birth that must take place in all of us, our lives, for us to qualify for the kingdom of God. Amen. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time? You see, the word second time now comes. It means that Nicodemus understood the meaning of the word again. Hallelujah. Now, there is something I forgot to say. You see, when you do a little study of the biblical languages, when I say biblical language, I mean Hebrew, Greek, or that when you do a little study, one of the things that you will come across is that some of the Hebrew words and the Greek words, they have more than one meaning. Hallelujah. That's something, when you read the Amplified Bible, you see that for one word, they will put a lot of things in brackets. So, Bible translated, found it difficult determining which of the words, like praise, English has only one word for praise. Hebrew has seven words. All right? Seven words. So when you read the sign, you see the word praise. It means seven of different words. Hallelujah. Halal, Toda, Shabak. They are seven Hebrew words. That means praise. Hallelujah. So sometimes that is where being a good Bible student is important. Amen. For example, if you come to the Greek language, English has one word for love. So Brother Daniel will have to tell the wife, I love you, and tell me, I love you. But when Brother Daniel is telling me, I love you, he's not saying in the same sense as he will say it to his wife. Is it not true? Yeah. If you are interpreting the Bible, you need to know what a word means from the original language. Because in Greek language, the Greek has four different words for, for love alone. Amen. Four different words. It's, it's very important for you to take your time. I said you should do what? Take your time. When you are doing Bible trans, don't, don't be in a hurry as if you want to, no, 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 take your time. The word again is a key word in this whole text that we are working on. Think about this. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. 
And the Bible said that, Jesus said to him, you need to be, uh, anyone who might want to be, enter the kingdom must be born again. He said, ah, how? How can anyone be born a second time? Does he need to enter the mother's womb again and be born? Hallelujah. Yeah. It means that Nicodemus' understanding is that there is a need for a second birth to happen. But how will that second birth happen? Amen. Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, you make it more complicated. Jesus said, everyone needs to be born twice. The first one is born of what? Water and the spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom. So the first birth is born of what? And the spirit. So Jesus began to lead Nicodemus to an important truth. Verse 6, he said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what is the meaning of John 3, 3? Except the man is born again, it's right here. Being born first of what? The flesh, and then being born of the spirit. Amen. And today I want to close by saying that for every one of us to enjoy the blessing of God, become a child of God, enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of God. This scripture is very important for all of us. It's not enough to be born by your parents. There is another life, a second life, that the spirit of God has to deliver in you. Then you become a child of God. Then you become qualified to enjoy the blessings of God. Hallelujah. Now, if you come back to verse 5, I've heard many preachers say that you need to be born again and then you need to have water baptism and then you have, to have Holy Ghost baptism, but that is wrong. This scripture never talks about water baptism. It talks about being born of water and of the spirit. Verse 6 says, being born of the flesh and of the spirit. It means that when Jesus said, except a man is born of water, he was referring to being born natural birth. Amen. That's how you interpret the scriptures. The scripture must interpret scripture. Amen. Now, the big question is that how will people be born of the Spirit? Because we are all born naturally. But what about being born of the Spirit? John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 gives us the answer. It says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. As many as received him. Who is he talking about? Jesus. As many as received Jesus, he gave them the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Verse 13. He said, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they are born of who? God. Put your hands together for the Lord. So how are we born by the Spirit? We are born of the Spirit when we believe in Jesus and we give our life to Jesus. The Bible says, as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And these children of God, they were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of... I want to suggest to everyone today that there is a second birth that must happen in your life. That birth brings the, the life of God in you. The life of God, a new life is born in you when you give your life to Jesus. And you surrender your life to Jesus, you ask him to come into your life. He comes into your life and the Holy Spirit gives birth to a new life in you. And that life is the life of God. It's the life that makes you a winner, an overcomer. The life that makes you prosperous and successful in every area of your life. It is that life that makes you a true child of God. Qualified to enjoy all the blessings of God in your life. Hope you've been blessed by today's message. You can contact Reverend Hubert on 030-340-7970 or 024-33-11201. Remain blessed.